Welcome to another episode of CU Lead, sponsored by NetGiver, the app and platform that enables donors and nonprofits to give and receive on a no-fee basis. On this podcast, we feature credit union industry executives and the impacts they make on communities everywhere. I'm Glenn Frechette, and today I am joined by Michelle Dwyer, President and CEO of Franklin First Federal Credit Union in Greenfield, Mass. Holy cow, Michelle, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a mouthful, huh? (laughs) It is a mouthful, and we don't know each other well. We've just gotten a chance to talk here over the past hour, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a pleasure to be able to sit down with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, as as you and I talked before recording... Mm My job is to break up your day a little bit. You're sitting through a conference. It's nice to, well, maybe play a little bit of hooky. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And we get to talk about things that are my passion in the credit union. So that's, it's win-win for me, for sure. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I can sense the passion just from the last 45 minutes of chatting with you. Uh, But for those listeners that don't know who the heck you are, Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you take us through that short journey that, uh, well, maybe it's a long one. I don't know. It's yeah. You're you're young, so I'm gonna pay you that compliment. You're young, (laughs) so however long the journey has been, help our listeners to get to know you a bit better by talking about your experience. Yeah, I have a pretty fun story. So I got into the credit union, Franklin First, in 2007. I had just moved out of my parents' house, gotten my first apartment, and I was working in a retail job that I decided I could no longer work in, and so I quit. And I had no job no way to pay rent in this apartment that I had just moved into. So I ended up going to a job placement program, like a mass hire program where they they put you in temp jobs and that kind of a thing. I went and I put in my information. And the first thing they called me about was a temporary teller position at Franklin First. Wow. Yeah. So, so I went and I interviewed and went back for a second interview and they hired me on as a temporary teller. And so summer-ish of 2007, I went on as a temporary teller. Um, obviously, I ended up staying on as a, as a full-time regular teller. I stayed in that position for a little while, and maybe a year and a half to two years in, I took on the lead teller position and then kind of rolled in a back office position at the same time. So I was doing teller for part of the day and doing back office ACH stuff for another part of the day. And uh, at the time, our comptroller would call the comptroller back then, which was our CFO. That's kind of a cool term. Let's bring it, it back. It is, right? A little bit. I think a little less class to it, but. <laughs> really? I'm, 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 I'm into bringing it back. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> All right. Left. And so his assistant moved into the CFO position. And so that left open another section of a back office job. So we were able to combine the back office job that I was doing that was kind of a part-time job with her part-time back office job and make that one full-time job. So I moved upstairs into back office from there on. And I was in that job for about five years, went to credit unit management school. And I kind of was lucky enough to know at that point that there wasn't really anybody else interested in potentially pursuing the CEO job in the succession of a, a, a retiring CEO at Franklin First. Okay. So she kind of said, two years, two to three years out, I'm going to be retiring. This might be something that you'd fit into. So went to credit union management school, went through that whole thing, started taking on some of her job responsibilities. And then in 2016, she retired and I stepped in. Thank God the board of directors was on board with letting 
this person that was only in the credit union industry for 10 years was only in her mid-30s. I step into the CEO role, and I've been doing that since. So about six years now, six, seven years, I've been the CEO. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, of all the podcasts that I've done, and I've asked a similar question yeah. of the CEO sitting in that chair, mm -hmm. what their journey has been, nobody has talked about their parents' basement. Really? <laughs> That's kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to have proud parents yeah, at the moment looking right? back. For sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think they're very much, they were floored because certainly it wasn't a career path that I was looking to take by any means. I fell into it and I fell in love with what the credit union was and the people I worked with. I mean, a lot of the people that were above me when I started as a teller are still in those same positions and happy to be there and doing their jobs every day. And so it's, it's one of those things where them being able to see a journey that maybe they wish that they had in their lives too, because they started working at young ages and worked their ways up in different ways too, but certainly would have never said they're as successful, right? You always want to see your kids achieve the success. And so, yeah, yeah. they certainly are very proud. Yeah. So you did say something though, that a lot of CEOs also share, and that is they fell into the yeah. role, Yeah. but then you just mentioned something that's intriguing to me. There isn't a defined career path per se to climb the corporate credit union ladder, if no. you will, uh, no. in succession. But should there be? Could there be? I think there should be, yeah. Certainly people, when they think about they want to be investment bankers or in finance in general, but you don't necessarily think even small community banks or credit unions, you don't think of a, of a long-term career there. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's really important for my shop, and I, I'm having conversations with other small credit unions I know for them too, developing internally is very important. So somebody coming in and doing part-time summer work from high school or college, trying to supplement, even somebody coming in just being a regular full-time teller or any kind of what would be considered front-facing lower-level position, making sure that they have all the skills necessary to potentially, even if they're not staying with us, to move up in the credit union world somewhere. Yeah. Because... The more we have involvement with younger people and understanding what credit unions are, what they can develop in their communities by creating financial inclusion and safety for their neighbors, it's, it's huge. And if they can get invested in that and get excited about that with older CEOs retiring, it feels safe. It feels yeah. safer to have people internally that understand what a credit union is and supposed to be developed from inside the credit union um, and being put in charge at a later date as opposed to hiring from outside from what might be a financial industry, somebody that's coming in with different ideas about banking or investment banking and stuff like that and kind of changing the tone of what a credit union is. You know what I also like about this topic we're discussing yeah. is the opportunities are then broadened coast to coast mm -hmm. in backyard communities Absolutely. everywhere. Yeah. So. You happen to live in Western Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful area that I'm sure a lot of people don't want to leave and necessarily move into a big metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. Would love to have a career living in Greenfield, Massachusetts, that is a position that has a position of status. Yeah. 
no less important of a job than even some of the folks that were honored during the lunch mm -hmm. serving in Boston, serving in New York City or Washington, D.C. Uh, so I think the career path gets opened up for backyard communities like yours. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. It's one of those things we're always fighting against as a small credit union too, right, is the big city competition, the big financial institution competition. And the, there are so many opportunities for smaller communities to get into this industry. Yeah. And the more small institutions there are, more new credit unions, community banks that develop in rural areas or what we would consider banking deserts, the more opportunity these people have to kind of get into the industry. So it's exciting. Yeah. So let's talk about yeah. culturally what you're trying to foster mm -hmm. with your own employee base. As it relates to community giving, are yeah. you encouraging your employees to be a part of, of all nonprofits in your own backyard? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my initiatives as transitioning from the back office to CEO was we weren't out in the community very much at all. It was very much we're head down, doing our jobs, just trying to get through the day, that kind of a thing. Mm. And I saw how not impactful we were, mm. for lack of better words, right? We kind of have lost our image in the community, not, not in a negative way, but just nobody really knew who we were. So one of the things I was like, we really need to get back in the community. Let's create an employee incentive plan that says, hey, we'll give you a bonus at the end of the year based on the number of hours or points that you earn through either your own involvement that you're already doing involvement in things that the credit union is going to be participating in and you want to volunteer for or if this is going to encourage you to go out and actually pick up something that maybe you hadn't thought about prior because you didn't have a real incentive base to do that and allowing hours to if you have something a board meeting or a volunteer project that might be happening during the business day like let us know we'll We'll give you that time. We'll make sure you get paid for your time that you're gone because you're a representative of us and encouraging that. It's, oh my gosh, yeah. I love this. What about other financial institutions within the community? Do you find that you sidle up next to one another for the benefit of the community and nonprofits? Are you doing good together? A hundred percent. So one of the things that I think is the greatest about Franklin First and the community banks in the area, which would be Greenfield Savings, Greenfield Co-op, uh, Freedom Credit Union gets in the mix there too. Okay. We all do collaborate quite a bit uh, with supporting the same organizations. I know I can, if like I'm on a board, I can call somebody at one of those institutions and be like, hey, we need a sponsorship for this thing. Can you, can you guys help us out? We'll do it every time. And it's even community programs. If we're if one of us is involved in something and we need a volunteer or insight or help somewhere, we we definitely are cooperative in that way. And it's I think that's kind of unique in a situation because I don't think that happens in a lot of communities. I, I think most people would report that credit unions are really good at cooperating yeah. with one another. Yeah. But you're right; yeah. you don't often hear in the same breath credit unions and community yeah. banks standing up for the greater good of the community. Yeah. No disrespect thrown no. to banks. Yeah. It just isn't happening Absolutely. as often. Yeah. I'm interviewing a little bit later today, Glenn Welch from yeah. Freedom, Freedom, they just yep. mentioned. So if he doesn't mention Franklin first, yeah, you I'm going to bring him. it up. Because <laughs> you, you gave him. him props. Absolutely, yeah. I'll make sure to, uh, right. to keep him honest. 
What are you seeing at the moment as we're nearing the end of 2023 and into 2024? Predictably, your members will be challenged by. What are you starting to plan for in that respect? Yeah, I think my big, my biggest concern as kind of inflation continues, rates they they make us want to believe that they're leveling out. They might go up a little bit more, but I think my biggest concern really is when rates start to trickle down, and the reason for that is because I think you're going to find a lot of people that have bought mortgages in this time, have bought automobiles in this time, are going to suddenly find themselves upside down because the valuations of those products has been so inflated by inflation that when that stuff kind of tries to come down and people try to refinance, they're not going to be able to. And I think people are buying into these things, specifically auto loans, at a higher rate because either they have, more or less because they have to, right? Their car broke down, they might need to get a new one. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we know rates are going to go down. We can, we can handle this for the next year, maybe two years. But when they go to refi and they realize the value isn't there anymore, yeah. it's going to be very difficult for them to do that. Yeah. And then just in general, you're seeing there's still so much movement in the labor market. And we are still seeing a lot of layoffs happen in our area and people kind of they certainly are still spending instead of saving. We're seeing that as a big as a big factor too. And my fear is that it's it's going to be a situation where people have kind of overspent themselves and not have the income going forward to kind of get themselves right with that. That's true. I think yeah. consumers at large have needed to dip into savings in yep. order to keep up with inflation. Yeah. So while spending is still at an all time high. The reality is it's because prices are driving that high spend. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, Now, what you just said about homes and Mm -hmm. cars, I know you're right and I hope you're wrong. Oh, yeah. Me too. (laughs) Oh, me too. Yeah. My hope is that the value stays in all that stuff and with lower inventory and kind of stuff that's happening in in the auto industry and stuff like that. There's a very good chance that I will be wrong and I want to be wrong because there will maybe there will not be the inventory. So that value stays in there. Well, call it artificial inflation yeah. or nervousness. Back yep. in 2020, we saw interest rates at a historic low yep. and yet the value of homes remained high. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to hope for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So same thought process. Same question. We're ending 2023. We're moving into 2024. What are you seeing locally with nonprofits that are finding themselves in more desperate need mm. than ever before? And as importantly, what are you doing to step up and support them? Yeah, I think um, I'm sure this is across the country. I think we're all seeing kind of more and more need with food insecurity, homelessness, certainly ramping up just services for children to be able to kind of just meet day-to-day functional products and services and ability to have the things they need to go to school and that kind of a thing. I think the amount of nonprofits we have in our area is we're very saturated in nonprofits. No kidding. Very saturated. No shortage of organizations to give to. That is correct. Absolutely. But it also makes it very hard for them in in a competition that shouldn't be a competition, right? Right. So I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm seeing is that everybody is trying to get 
funding from all the same people. Right. And the well is only so deep there. For me, being able to, as a small credit, when we don't, credit union, we obviously don't have a budget that could maybe compare to something they could get from a GSB or even a Freedom. Hmm. But we are really concentrated on being able to participate and help them in different ways. Sure, our financial contribution is there, but I have an employee that spends a lot of time helping with marketing for nonprofits. She'll spend some time almost every day doing posters or making tickets for an event and that kind of a thing for a nonprofit so that they don't have to worry about that on their administrative end. They don't, they don't have the time to do that because they're doing other things. So we'll take care of that. Wow. Yeah. So we do a lot of that. That's a big leap. Helping where we can, for sure. At at a point later in time, we ought to be talking about NetGiver and the assistance we might be able to provide. And you're reminding me of a conversation that I had a week ago. And I hadn't hadn't asked the question in a way that it elicited the answer that I'm about to share with you. She also told me that she lives in an area where the competition among nonprofits she knew the number right off the top of her head. She yeah. said it was number nine in the country in terms of saturation. Yeah. And the fact that she knew that led me to believe, and I know it to be true, mm-hmm. she understands what she's up against. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you're, yeah. you're experiencing much I don't of know the, the exact number, but I, I, I did send her, sit in a presentation for a nonprofit, and it's, it's upwards of 300 nonprofits in our very small area. Mm. That's a lot. That's a lot to have to, for them to have to deal with. and. They all have their own spot and their own their own thing that they're trying to take care of. Mm-hmm. And I the good thing is, is a lot of them do collaborate. Like they don't want to invent the wheel. But yeah, it's it is it's a very hard thing to deal with when you know that you have that much other competition. And it's competition for not just funding, but competition for board members and volunteers. And I I could probably name three organizations right now that have at least five of the same you know, majority board members, because that's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very slim picking. Uh, I want to steer you away from this line of questioning for just a minute, and then we'll end talking about nonprofits again. Social responsibility means a lot of different things to Mm -hmm. a lot of different people. For me specifically, I think about the last several years, maybe a Maybe social responsibility awareness was heightened right around the time COVID broke. Yep. There were some unfortunate incidents that transpired in the world in the last several years, yeah. also bringing awareness to things like diversity, equity, and yep. inclusion, and otherwise. I'd like to just get your perspective on social responsibility that you ensure you have within the credit union, and then how that transcends out into the community as well. Yeah, I think making certain caveats to being able to make all of our financial products inclusive mm-hmm. is really the thing that I think is the most socially responsible thing that we do. We have products that serve children, teenagers, people that have no credit, bad credit. Doing things like that and making sure that people are going to be financially healthy, I think that's kind of the only step that we have in our size, in our area, that we can participate and feel like we are being socially responsible for our neighbors and our community. So give me an example then of a product uh, for a teenager that you have that you're proud of. Yeah. So we introduced our teen checking account um, probably a year and a half ago. It's for um, 
kids from 13 to 17. Um, there's no overdraft attached to it, so they can't get NSF fees. They have access to a debit card, the mobile app, online banking. It's basically like your regular checking account. You do have to have a legal guardian mm-hmm. on the account with you just for sake of responsibility. But it really, I think, helps with learning financial education really early on. I mean, we all know that I, that there is no real financial education in schools. It's, there is pressures now to do that, and that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But... Up until now, really the only option for kids and teens to have a checking product to really be able to learn what financial healthy habits are and spending are, are online banks. You know, the ones that offer the products that are simply mobile apps that, you know, that really don't do much. And we have an opportunity that when the kids come in to open accounts, we can start forming relationships so they feel comfortable asking us questions. I think that's huge. Yeah. So my guess is when you show a physical check to a 13-year-old. No idea. No <laughs> idea. I mean, there's some 20-year-olds. We have a, you know, an employee that has 20-year-olds that has no idea how to write a check. Yes. I mean, that's just, that's, that's which kind of where it is. which you reply, you know you get them from your grandmother right. on your birthday. Yeah, You've yeah. seen one of these. Absolutely. Don't make like you have Correct, them. yeah. Grandma yeah. sends the $15 Absolutely. check. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. And my guess is there's an emphasis on digital much more than would have been, let's say, 25 years ago. Oh, where, yeah. Where yeah, the I mean, that's, that's also what's attractive to them, right? They don't. And they don't want to write a check. They they want to have instant access. They want the mobile app so they can see everything happen when it happens. And starting to form those habits of even looking at online banking multiple times a day. Yeah. As obsessive as we might all be with it, it's a it's a good healthy habit to know what you have and what you can spend and not right. to spend more than that. Yeah. All right. So let's end in a real good spot. Yeah. Going to dive down a couple of inches and hopefully there's an organization that's personal for you insofar as... Uh, maybe near and dear to your family. I- I'd love for you to plug something that's meaningful for you. Yeah. So I have two, really. So we have at the credit union, and it really, from the credit union is how we really got into this organization, is the Children's Advocacy Center of Franklin County and North Fauburn Region. So that organization has multi-prongs of what it does, but it really has a central location within the Franklin County area that if a child is sexually abused, they have an opportunity to go to this this center and it provides a space for them to be interviewed by somebody that is qualified to be interviewed, interviewing them in a very safe way, in a very safe space, one time while all of the, the legalese and the police departments and stuff observe that. So the child is not being overwhelmed. And then there's continuing services, therapy and doctors and getting them in the right programs and making sure that they understand the court process and Uh, It's just an excellent organization to make sure the kids are not only being addressed at the time of their trauma, but the continuing factors of how the organization follows this child to make sure that they have the best chance of turning this this event um, around to being able to successfully go through life down the road. The second one is Musica Franklin. So I sit on the board on that, and that is a program that offers it's an after-school program that is like string violin instrument classes okay. for what really ends up being kind of elementary school kids. So they have a program in Greenfield and they have a program in Turner's Falls. 
So the kids after school, they go to this program and they learn how to play the violin or the guitar. They also do some choir practices. So the kids get to learn music at a young age, have a support community among peers, and they kind of get to interact from other schools too. So it's bringing multiple schools together and so the kids are able to kind of make friends outside of their their normal kind of sphere of classroom and they they one of their big um things is also focus on racial racial justice it's it's a really great super cool yeah well now i get to send you back into session thank you so much thank you so much yes it was a great conversation thank you thank you